Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are continuing to explore the scriptures dealing with point number three, point number three in our worksheet entitled Important Prophecy Terms. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are comparing and contrasting seven sets of key prophecy terms so that we have a good understanding of phrases that when just read over in the scriptures appear to be very similar, could even be taken as the same thing. And when we study the scriptures, we find out that those two terms, of which there are seven sets, those two terms in each case are quite, quite different. And if you understand that and use it in the right context, it makes the scriptures much more easy to understand. You can see the flow of God's word, I believe, much more easily and more thoroughly as we go through the prophecies that the Heavenly Father has given us in his precious 66 books. So again, we're in point number three. We're looking at the the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. And we uh, will explain why those two are different, even though gospel means good news, even though it's Jesus bringing both of those gospels. The key point that we want to discover here through our exploring the scriptures is that it's very important to understand who is speaking to whom about what. In in both cases, it's Jesus speaking, but the people being spoken to are quite different, and what's being spoken about is quite different in most every instance. Faith in Jesus Christ is the same, but from there out, it's quite, quite different. And we've been exploring those points, and if you've got your worksheet in front of you that you can download from the station here, you can see that we have gone through the scriptures dealing with him as the Jesus as the promised prophet, the promised Messiah, the promised king, and the promised conqueror. And we have now been spending some time, starting with the tribulation, to develop this picture that Jesus brings to us as he describes the gospel of the kingdom. And I should say, using the Old Testament prophets' descriptions as complementary in addition to what Jesus tells us, we get a full picture of what this gospel of the kingdom that was prophesied, that was given rather, prophesied and given to Israel 2,000 years ago when Jesus um, entered into his ministry there at the Jordan River when he was baptized by John the Baptist and began his ministry of approximately three, three and a half years before he was crucified because Israel would not accept his good news of, of the kingdom that he was offering at that time. So we were um, we had gone through Jeremiah to set up the understanding of the tribulation, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. We'd gone through Deuteronomy 4, 21 through um, 31, and we were in Joel. So let's go to the book of Joel to get started here in, in today's program. And the book of Joel is one of the minor prophets. If you get 
about halfway into your Bible there around Isaiah, Jeremiah, work your way back to the right, past Ezekiel and Daniel, and you'll get into Hosea. Uh, I call him Hosea, Hoshea, um, as the first of the minor prophets in order here. And the next one is Joel. Joel's a small, short book. That's why he's called a minor prophet. But it is so full of um, prophecy. You know, just as a side note, uh, when you think of the minor prophets, you think of Micah. Micah is further on in here right after Jonah. Micah is a, is a short book. It's only seven chapters. But in terms of word count, in terms of word count, there is more prophecy in Micah um, than any other book in the Bible. I mean, we're talking Isaiah. We're talking just any of the big prophecies, Daniel. Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, word count, Micah, by word count, because it's only seven chapters, has more prophecy packed into it than any other book in the Bible. So uh, number one out of 66 books, just a, a side note, because we, we have from time to time been in Micah, and we will uh, we'll be back there again because of the fact that it's so full of prophecy. But we're in Joel, another one of these... Um, short books that's so packed with information that has um, mostly to do with the tribulation period. And we were looking in Joel chapter 2, and we had looked at the first two verses. So just by way of bringing us up to speed here and going forward, we want to start with verse 1 and and go over it again. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, which is another reference to Jerusalem. And sometimes they use that to refer to Israel. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And that would be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And remember the last point number two in our worksheets, which if you've been following along, you've gone through that with us, was to compare and contrast the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And even though the Lord's involved in both, and the term day is in there, they are as different as night is from day. And to understand that difference is is very important. So now, having gone through that study with us, when you read the day of the Lord is coming, you immediately know this is not a good thing. This is a very bad thing. This is a coming judgment and a time of terrible, terrible tribulation. So for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. Verse 2 of Joel 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be after it. To the years of many generations, and that's another way of saying basically forever, and we mentioned at the end of our last uh, teaching portion of our last program that this reads a lot like Matthew 24, 31, where it's describing the tribulation, that There will never be anything like it before, has never been anything like it before, never will be anything again. And that helps us to understand we are talking about the tribulation. The reason I want to stop here for a moment is if you don't um, make an effort to study the Bible in context and to take the time to read what comes before a passage or a, a set of scriptures and what comes after it to get understanding of that context, you can easily mis- be misled into thinking something totally different than what God's trying to get across to you. For instance, it says in verse 2 that um, 
so there is a great and mighty people. Well, you think about the time of Joel, a great and mighty people could very clearly have been the Assyrians, who came down in the late 700s B.C., uh, first in 733 and then finally in 722, and took the ten northern tribes of Israel into captivity. And they've been gone ever since. They call them the ten lost tribes. Well, they're only lost to the world and the way the world looks at it. God knows exactly where every one of them is because he's going to bring every one of them back that's alive at the time of the tribulation to judge them and to bless those who are found righteous at that time. So he knows where every one of them is. But it could refer to the the Assyrians because this is the time of Joel. It would have been in the time frame that Joel prophesied. And you could say yes, to some extent, some of this could apply to that. It's called near-term prophetic application and far-term prophetic application. There are things that would happen in the near-term future that could also be clearly applied to the far-term because it's punishment that God is bringing. And when God brings punishment, he does it either through nature, most often through famines, for instance, or plagues like locusts and so forth, which, of course, would bring about famines. Or he does it by bringing other ungodly, uh, um, idol-worshipping nations. And in that case, it was the Assyrians. Before that, he used the Egyptians. And he uses these different empires to come against Israel to punish them for their disobedience. He never brings them to wipe out Israel. There's always going to be a remnant of Israel left, both believing and unbelieving. And... um, But there's going to be a point in time at the end of the tribulation period where it's going to be called the Armageddon battle, and that's actually somewhat of a misnomer because the battle doesn't take place uh, at Armageddon, which is actually a place up in the northern part of the Galilee. It's named after a place called Har, which means hill, and a town or area called Megiddo, Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. That's where the armies of the Antichrist are going to gather or as we say in the military, marshal their forces together, but then they're going to march south and, and, and east to attack Jerusalem. The actual battle is for Jerusalem, and that's what they're alluding to here as they talk about these people coming and, and creating all this havoc and so forth, but it's really a more clearly an understanding of the time of tribulation. And the reason we can say that with um, a surety is, first of all, let's look again at verse 2. It says, um, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. So if it had been the Assyrians, well, we had the Babylonians, <laughs> um, we had the, um, the Persians, we had the Greeks, we had the Romans, um, all of those. So you can't say that it's ne- it'll never happen again. So this clearly tells you it has to be at the end of times during the tribulation. And now in Joel, if you would uh, stay with me in chapter two, and let's now go to verse three. And it says a fire consumes before them talking about this army moving towards Jerusalem, a fire consumes before them and burns and behind them, a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. This is another, I believe, 
a clear reference to the end times, to the period of the tribulation. And the reason I say that is the third line. The land is like, so it's an, it's an analogy. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's not saying it is the Garden of Eden. Please understand that. And that's one of the key tools of Bible study is to look at this. When you see a term like, it doesn't say the land is the Garden of Eden. It says like the Garden of Eden. In other words, it's going to be lush comparatively. And never in the history of Israel for the last, let's say for sure, the last 2,000 years has Israel been anything like it is today. There are more trees in Israel than ever before. Um, They are a major exporter of fruits and vegetables and flowers to the world. They teach people how to do um, agriculture and how to do... um, uh, growing things in water and so forth. And you think, wait a minute, this is a desert land. Believe me, I've been there several times, and I have seen the lushest of vegetables being grown in the desert by these people who God has blessed with these skills to do this. So comparatively, it's not the Garden of Eden, but comparatively to where it's been, particularly in the last, let's say, 500 years, it is like a Garden of Eden. So you could see that as being something that's only been evident, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes in our lifetime, in my lifetime. So another thing that tells you that it was a period like this, and then let's build on that even more, and let's make it very sure, matter-of-factly. Let's stay in Joel 2 and go down to verse 10. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. All right, this is a description of the tribulation given in Matthew 24, as we'll we'll go to that particular passage and look at it. This is a description that only happens at the end of the tribulation period, is when the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And he gets into even more description. All right, then continue on in 11. And this seals it. The Lord utters his voice before his army. So the Bible tells us that the Lord comes back with his angels, with his army, the Lord's army. He is the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, that means the Lord of armies. It says the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So we see here that Joel is talking about a time of darkness, a time of gloom, a time of... um, when the earth is going to quake, the heavens are going to tremble, the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to grow dark, and his great army is going to become evident because he's going to come back at his second coming at the end of the tribulation, that seven-year terrible period, and he's going to fight and defeat the armies of the Antichrist there at the end and send the Antichrist and his false prophet into the lake of fire. They are the first two entities, the Antichrist and the false prophet. 
They are the first two entities in the history of mankind to be thrown into the lake of fire. And what a just uh, and fitting end for them. So we see that in Joel chapter 2, verses um, 10 through 12. And let's stay in Joel chapter 2 once again, and let's go to verses 18 and 19 and see what the Lord does. Joel chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Then, so that means after something, after something has happened, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. What is his land? Israel. Um, We learn in Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, God says, this is my land. I'm allowing you, Israel, to live on it as long as you're obedient. But this is my land. You do not give it away. You do not sell it to anybody. Of course, they did. And they'll be judged for it. And we'll see um, later on in Joel that Joel says that God punishes the Gentiles for doing the same thing. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, verse 18, and will have pity on his people. Who are his people? Israel. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, to Israel, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Now remember, he made Israel a reproach following Egypt and their disobedience. The Assyrians, it made Israel a reproach. The Babylonians made Israel a reproach. The Medo-Persians made Israel a reproach. The Greeks made Israel a reproach a reproach, and the Romans did the same thing. But he says here, I will never again. So this, to me, is another of of several that we've read here in Joel chapter 2, another clear statement that this is a yet future event, and when it happens, it'll never happen again. And that has to be the, the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ to judge the earth. So that's looking at um, Joel and uh, the tribulation period, and then we're going to uh, go into the New Testament as we try to do in each one of these points uh, what the Old Testament says about it in terms of prophecy and then what the New Testament has to say about it as well. And I'm doing that with this gospel of the kingdom because there are, uh, unfortunately, a, a growing number of people who have been led to believe there's no need to study the Old Testament. It's all about Israel, and who cares about Israel? Well, as you know, based on what we've said about Satan and his desire relative to Israel, that's a satanic uh, understanding. If you believe that that uh, there's no need to know anything about Israel, you are saying there's no need to know anything about God's wife. And Romans chapter 15 tells us very clearly that everything that God had the prophets write about his relationship with Israel was for our benefit. We're to learn from it. We're to grow in it. It's to glorify God. And we will play a role in this as the church in the millennial kingdom. So we need to understand what this is all about, why it's happening, why it didn't happen 2,000 years ago, and why it's going to happen yet future, and exactly what it's going to look like. So that's an exciting time, and that's why we want to spend this time understanding what the gospel of the kingdom is relative to the gospel of grace. And we'll continue that when we look at Matthew 24 in our next uh, teaching portion. But we need to transition, as we always do in our program, 
to our Q&A, and we are looking at a question that was asked, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy? And we spent quite a bit of time um, confirming, and you can uh, go back and listen to some of those if you wish, um, confirming that Israel is indeed the wife of God. God refers to himself as the husband of Israel. Then we went in to show how the church is, while it's very, very important in God's plan, and of course that's certainly a given from our perspective for you and me as um, sons and daughters of the living God through the blood of Christ, we are part of the church. But before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was all about Israel and God's relationship with Israel, his wife. And after the rapture, which is the next prophetic event in the timeline that we're going to study, everything after the rapture, it's all about Israel again. So it's important that we understand Israel and we understand how the church played a role but will be taken out of the picture per se relative to the earth, not God's overall picture, but relative to the earth because Israel's blessings are all earthly. Remember, the church's blessings are all heavenly. The church has no earthly blessings. We have so much more to look forward to. But in Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 18, we spent time there to show that even the apostles uh, during that first century admitted that God is going to take a people from himself among the Gentiles, as referring to the church, and once he does that, Acts 15 says, then I will return, and that's referring to the second coming, I will return and rebuild the tent of David. In other words, I'll reestablish the kingdom, and I will be the head of the kingdom, I being Jesus. So what is all that about? Why is Israel so important? Well, the scriptures are so clear about why Israel is so important. And we went through those looking at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We were in Daniel chapter 9, which is that wonderful prophecy of Israel's future, all the way um, into the millennial kingdom, talking about the Daniel's 70th week, which is that week of tribulation. We went into quite a bit of detail there. Then we were in Matthew 25, talking about um, once again, God turns his attention to the Gentiles that are on the earth at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and to show you just how important Israel is relative to God's judgments on the earth. We went to Matthew 25, and we showed that this is Jesus coming back, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. This is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. It's very clearly from the Scripture's a description of Jesus judging the, the surviving Gentiles, not the Jews, the surviving Gentiles at the end of the tribulation period. And those that are counted as righteous, the sheep, will be the Gentiles who walk into the millennial kingdom in their earthly bodies, not glorified like the church. They will walk into the millennial kingdom, and they will all be counted as righteous. But there's a judgment made of the Gentiles, and it's a judgment based on how they treated the Jews. And that passage in there is is mis, um, misapplied, unfortunately, often to apply to the church. The church is not in that passage anywhere. It's all about the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation being judged for how they treated the Jews during the tribulation. 
So what God does in, in Matthew 25, 31, and 32 is he comes back, sits on his throne to judge, and he gathers all the Gentiles. Well, what does he talk to him about? Let's, let's prove by going to Joel that it has to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. So we'll go back to Joel where we've been in our teaching program, so we should be somewhat familiar with that. You can find Ezekiel and Daniel, and then keep going to the right into the minor prophets. You get Hosea, and the next book is Joel. And I'd like you to go to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, and let's look at the first two verses there. For behold, Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, so he's talking yet future, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. And remember when he says, I gather all the nations, Israel is never counted among the nations. So when you see the term all the nations, it means the Gentiles. I will gather all the nations. Well, that directly refers to Matthew 25, verse 32. He says, I will gather all of those nations. And I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there are those that believe that that's the Kidron Valley, but that's uh, that's just a belief. It doesn't say specifically where that is, but Jehoshaphat means God judges. God judges. So I'm going to bring them down to the valley of the judging God, if you want to put it that way. And then it says, then I will enter into judgment with them there. Where's there? Valley of Jehoshaphat. On behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. So he's going to judge the Gentile survivors of the tribulation based on his inheritance, his people, Israel. So back in Matthew 25, when it talks about the least of these, he's talking about the Israelites, my brothers. His brothers were the Israelites. Jesus was a Jew. Continuing on, whom they, who's they? The Gentiles that are being judged, whom they have scattered among the nations. Who scattered the Israelites over the millennia, uh, starting with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and so forth, and then the Romans? Who did that? Well, I just said it. These Gentile empires did it, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided my land. They have divided my land. So it tells you why he's going to judge them. And it says in verse 14 of Joel chapter 3, multitudes, multitudes, and these are all the Gentiles that have survived the tribulation in the valley of decision. And of course, that's the valley of Jehoshaphat we just read about. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, and that includes that judgment time. It starts at the midpoint of the tribulation when when Israel is exposed to the wrath of Satan and uh, the overall wrath of God it talks about, and then, then there's this judgment. So we see that the judgment of the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation is based on how the Gentiles treated little old Israel little old Israel, that people want to think nothing of and wish that Israel would go away. But can you not see that how important Israel is to God, that when God judges the rest of the world after he judges Israel, he judges the rest of the world at the end of the tribulation based on how they treated Israel during the tribulation. 
We're going to talk about some very glorious things about Israel and the Millennial Kingdom in our next um, Q&A portion of our program. But until then, remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.